Hello, uh, I'm going to be reading Exodus 33, which can be found on page 92 of the Church Bibles. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you're a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance, while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua son of Nun did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Thank you, Danny. May I add my welcome to that of Chris. If we don't know each other, my name is uh, Nick Tucker. I'm the vicar here at BH. Uh, It's wonderful uh, to see you this morning, whether you're a regular or if this is your first time with us. I'm just so glad uh, for the chance to be together. Now, as we come to look at God's word, we're finishing our series in the book of Exodus today. Uh, May I just lead us in prayer. Father, thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that as we gather You are with us by your spirit. And we pray that each of us might hear you speaking to us today and might be changed by what we hear 
and by you, the one we meet. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a long time coming, hasn't it, this sermon, in a sense, in that we've been working through the book of Exodus for a long time. Uh, And uh, today we reach the end, the climax of the book. If you remember back far enough, if you were with us, uh, the book started with the people of Israel crying out to God in agony, enslaved in Egypt, oppressed under the heel of Pharaoh. They cry out to the God who had promised them a land of their own, and he answers He sends this man, Moses, gives him power to perform miraculous signs to show to Pharaoh that it really is God who is saying, set my people free, and yet Pharaoh will not listen until one fateful night. God says, I will send my destroying angel through the land, and the firstborn son in every house will die. But for the people of Israel, he says, if you take a lamb and you slaughter that lamb and you put its blood on the lintels and doorposts of your houses, then the destroying angel will pass by and the firstborn in your household will not die. And that day, God says, this is to be the first day of the first month of the year for you. And you are to celebrate and remember this day forever. This is the moment when you're founded as a nation. This day called the Passover because the angel of death passed over God's people because sacrifice had been made in their place. And then God led the people, if you know the story, God led the people out of Egypt. His pillar of cloud and fire both guarded them and protected them. It formed a a sort of rear guard for them as Pharaoh and his army tried to pursue them. God led them through a sea, the Red Sea that he split in half and they walked through. And then he led them to this mountain where we are still today in chapter 33, led them to this mountain where his glory was revealed at the summit of the mountain and no one was able to go on or to go up apart from Moses. And from that mountain, God spoke to his people and said, this is the sort of people you must be if I am to be your God. He made a covenant with them, a binding promise in which he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. But to be my people, you must be like this. He gave them what we call the Ten Commandments. And even before the people had been given the commandments, they'd broken them. That's what we heard uh, two weeks ago, wasn't it? With the golden calf. They made themselves a calf to worship. Instead of God, they, 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 they took all the things that God had done and attributed them to a, a statue that they had made a God that they could control, a God that that they could shape for themselves. But when God met with Moses, he said, this is the name you are to tell the people to know me by. I am who I am. That there is a God who, this God, who was not made by anyone else, who is not defined or shaped by anyone else, who is totally free, totally himself, totally self-defining. 
and that a relationship with this God is a relationship with the God who says, this is who I am. I shape everything. I've given you life. I've given you breath. I've given you your heart and your mind. And all of those things belong to me in worship. And in chapter 33, on page 92 of your Pew Bibles, we come into the aftermath of this terrible event where the people have said, oh, we're not going to live like that. We'll make our own God, we'll worship it, we'll give thanks for getting us out of Egypt and we'll head on to the promised land. Uh, and God says, I'm done with you. But Moses prays for the people. He says, you've made a promise. You must, surely you'll keep your promise. And God says, of course I'll keep my promise. And so here in chapter 33, in the aftermath of the horrors of the golden calf incident, God says to Moses, right, it's time to go to the land that I promised on oath. And what's very striking is that Moses doesn't go, yippee, this is the thing we've been waiting for. The very reason they came out of Egypt was to go to God and with him to the promised land. Uh, and now God says, okay, on you go. Go to the promised land. I'll drive out all the nations in front of you. It'll all be fine. And Moses basically says, I do not want to go to the promised land if I don't go with you. It's very striking, isn't it? He says, if, if you won't go with us, do not send us up from here. That's verse 15. Moses would rather be living in tents in the wilderness in the presence of God than in paradise on earth without him. It strikes me that that's probably quite a significant thing, isn't it? He says to God, unless you go with us, don't send us. Even if this land really is, as you say, flowing with milk and honey, even if it really is heaven on earth, it will not be heaven to us if you are not with us. And God says, I will go with you and I will show you my glory. Although you can't look on it all and live, I will show you a glimpse of who I am. Now, if we flick over to chapter 40, which is on page, uh, hopefully on page 100 of the church Bibles, easy to remember. We get to the very end of the book. Uh, and chapter 40 acts as a sort of climax to the book. And one of the reasons you can see that uh, is uh, the very beginning in verse two. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Now, that's the Passover, right? This is the first anniversary of the Passover of them leaving Egypt. This is the day when they remember everything God has done for them. On the first day of the first month, says God to Moses, you ought to set up the tabernacle. Now, if you've been with us, you'll know that God has given extraordinarily detailed, extraordinarily detailed instructions about how to build the tabernacle. It's made up of lots of little different bits, frames and curtains and, uh, and, and coverings uh, and items to go within the tabernacle. Uh, and up until this point, for months, the finest craftsmen of Israel with the greatest treasures of Israel have been making all the parts of this tabernacle, this tent 
It's like a portable temple that goes with Israel through the desert. And they've made all the bits, but they've never been assembled until this moment. And God says, on the first day of the first month, you had to put it all together. And most of the rest of chapter 40 just takes us back through the instructions that have been given. It says, and Moses did this just as the Lord had commanded. Moses did this just as the Lord commanded. And then, dramatically, in verse 33, then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Now, we'll come back to that in a second. But they've had all the bits that God has said, if you make this tent the way I've shown you, I will come and be with you. My presence will be at the heart of the camp. Up until now, God's been out miles away. Moses had to trek out to the tent of meeting. People had to trek out to the tent of meeting to be close to the presence of God. But God says, in this temple, I will come and dwell with you, with my people. Uh, And it feels to me as though when you get uh, to verse 33 of chapter 40 uh, of this book of Exodus, it it feels like, or it should feel a bit like, the film Oppenheimer, if you've seen it. Now, uh, in in the film, there are lots of different threads. It's, It's kind of brilliantly all weaved together. But the sort of main narrative is the scientists who have come to the belief on the basis of theory that an unimaginable release of energy as possible if you do the right things. If you put a device together in exactly the right way, then the energy that was involved in the creation of the universe could be released. And as it builds up towards the testing of this device, you see the scientists and engineers testing every bit, making every bit absolutely precise to incredibly tiny tolerances, that they're building it all up. And on the day of the test, there's this great tension. As every bit is assembled and hoisted up to the top of this tower where they're going to test it, every electrical connection is examined, tested, and retested. Uh, And then everyone retires to what they think is a safe distance. And the countdown begins. And as I was watching it, what came to my mind was uh, a few years ago, Sam uh, gave me for Christmas a build-your-own FM radio. Uh, And all the bits are there, and you sort of assemble them all together. And then the moment comes where you sort of put the battery in. (laughs) And you wait to see if it's worked. And there they are, in the desert, with this device up on top of a tower, uh, with all the, all the electrics in place, and the countdown begins. And as the countdown goes on, everyone is just a ball of nervous energy. Everyone is incredibly tense. Will it work? And the countdown reaches zero, and the, is, the switch is flipped. And then suddenly light like they've never seen. Power that in one sense no human had ever witnessed is unleashed. Now, you know and I know 
that that moment of success in the film is not necessarily a great moment of success for the human race. There's terrible destruction that follows from that. But they're putting together something that they think will release incredible power. And until it is all assembled, they have no idea whether it's going to work. And so here you get to Exodus 40, verse 33, and you have no idea what's going to happen next. Tiny tolerances. Everything has been put together exactly as God said. We're told that. Moses did just what the Lord had shown him. Moses did just what the Lord had commanded. And the tent is finished. And everyone takes a breath. And then verse 34, something immeasurably greater than the release of just a bit of the power that was put into the creation of the universe happens. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The God who assembled every single one of the atoms in the universe, a God of unimaginable power and glory and holiness, his glory fills the tabernacle. The glory of God is present at the heart of his people. It worked. And now it is the case, the rest of the chapter tells us, that wherever God goes, Israel goes with him, and he dwells in their midst in this tabernacle. Can you imagine what that moment must have been like for God's people? I'm not sure I can. But here is where it all gets really interesting. Because as you may well know, Christians do not have a temple. Here is this portable temple. They then build a temple in stone in Jerusalem where God's glory will dwell. But there's no place in the world where you can go to experience the presence of God like that. Which is all, in one sense, very well, because most Israelites never got anywhere near the glory of the Lord anyway. There are all these curtains separating you off. It's a big no-entry sign. Christians don't have a temple. We don't have a place you can go to where the glory of God can be seen. And yet, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says that the reality that you experience in the church is immeasurably greater than what Moses and the Israelites experienced. That if they knew what you know, they would envy you. So writing to the Corinthians, Paul describes the whole church as being the temple of God. The people, that is, gathered together are the temple of God in whom he dwells by his Holy Spirit. And then, warning the people off sexual immorality, God says to each individual, 
You are, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Christianity has always been odd in its approach to sexuality. It's completely at odds with most of what the human race has, has, has said or thought about sex through the whole of history. It was very strange in ancient Roman society for a man and a woman to come together for life and, and, to, and to plead complete fidelity to each other. It's unheard of, really. And the church was considered to be incredibly strange. But the reason for it is what Paul says to the Corinthians is your body, each one of you, if you're a Christian, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells within you. Why is all this the case? Why is there this, this sense that, that for the Christian and for the Christian church, things are different and better and greater than Moses? We'll come on to talk about whether that's our experience or not in a moment. But remember Exodus 40, verse 33? And Moses finished the work. This is John chapter 19 and, and verse uh, 28, I think. But... Yeah, that's it, 28. Later, this is Jesus being crucified. On what date? The Passover. This is the anniversary of the setting up of the tabernacle. Two, right? Jesus is dying on the cross. And this is what John says about what happened. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And then John goes on to show that it really is Passover. So three times he's drawing our attention back to Exodus 40. Jesus knew it was finished. He said it was finished. It's the day of preparation of the Passover. It's finished. And so with the death of Jesus, with him saying it is finished, there is this expectation that what is to follow is far, far greater than what happened in the wilderness. Because what the New Testament writers want us to understand is that Everything that's spoken of in those early books of the Bible is simply pointing forward to this new and greater reality in Jesus. Moses finished the work. Jesus finished the work. Jesus, the new and better and greater Moses, who leads his people not just out of Egypt, but out of sin and death and hell. What's going to follow? Well, just as the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle uh, and the cloud was, was, was filled with fire, uh, in uh, the book of Acts, at the very beginning, Jesus says to his disciples, as the power of God that was unleashed on the cross is demonstrated, first of all, in his being raised from the dead, and then in him being actually lifted up into heaven to reign over the whole universe, he says to his disciples, Wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power 
from on high. And then there, as they're waiting in Jerusalem on the Feast of Pentecost, there is this sound, the room is shaken, there's this sound like the blowing of a wind. And then just as there's fire in the pillar of fire that comes into the tabernacle, each of them has fire, descends onto their heads, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they begin to declare the praises of God in the languages of all the various people who are gathered in Jerusalem for the feast. It's so many different languages, and they're speaking them. Why? Because they're declaring the glory of God. God has indeed given them power to declare the extraordinary good news of Jesus. And listen to how Peter explains what people are witnessing. It was bewildering. It was extraordinary. They couldn't make sense of it. This is what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. You see, the people of God throughout the Old Testament have got a huge problem. God is out there. And I'm over here, and there's this barrier between us caused by sin, caused by my turning away from God, my going my own way. And as God sent prophets to his people, he said, the day is coming when I will change you from the inside out. I will bring you forgiveness, which is what Jesus achieved on the cross, and I will change you from the inside out, and you will be my people. He promised to give his Holy Spirit, that is God himself coming to live inside his people. And Peter's sermon on that day of Pentecost ends like this. So he said, this is the promised Holy Spirit, Jesus who has died and risen from the dead and been exalted to heaven. He has poured out what you now see and hear. This is the promised Holy Spirit, the one that the apostles, the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of. And at the end of his sermon, it's what every preacher dreams of, the whole crowd hear it and they're cut to the heart and they say what shall we do and this is what Peter replies Peter replied repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off now so often when we tell the good news of Jesus that's not where we end is it we say something like this, repent and be baptized, if, if, if that's part of the call, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And then we finish, and God will take you to heaven. But strikingly, that's not how Peter finishes here, is it? What he actually says is, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. There is forgiveness in Jesus, and because of that forgiveness, heaven is going to come down to you. And the picture of the Spirit's work in the New Testament, the fundamental picture of it, is that the Spirit comes and makes real in our lives in an experiential way the reality of what Jesus has done for us on the cross in his finished work. So that Christianity is, by its nature, an experiential religion. That even now we are supposed to be living like a kind of outpost of heaven. Because God is present in us, individually, and in us, 
corporately. Now, that will, if that's true, that changes everything, doesn't it? That changes the way we see each other. Paul actually says, you know, you're, the church is God's temple, so anyone who destroys the church, God himself will destroy. There's a reverence for the church and for the significance of each other and what we mean as we gather together that comes from believing that this is the temple of the Spirit, not the building, but the people. And it will change the way I think about my own life, what I do with my body. Paul says, what you do with your body matters enormously because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's funny, isn't it? When, when we use that language in our culture all the time, that means my body is a temple. And, and what we mean by it is, say, I'll eat my greens. But actually, Paul says, what you do with your body matters because you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit makes real to the people of God that promise that God will be with his people forever. Now, you observe that in all kinds of ways. One of the ways that Paul tells the Galatians to observe it is to say the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit's work in the church is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Things that you can't just will up by willpower. You can't say, today I'm going to be a kind person. It doesn't work like that. Today I'm going to be self-controlled. Well, if I was self-controlled enough to make myself self-controlled, I'd be self-controlled already. But the Spirit of God produces these changes in his people as he lives in them. But also an experience of the love and presence of God can and should be part of the experience of what it is to be a Christian. Maybe that's something you know and feel when you read your Bible and you pray in the morning. Maybe it's something you know and feel as you gather as God's people. God is with us by his spirit. You should actually feel that. Maybe not all the time. That should be part of our experience of living as Christian people. That from time to time, maybe even to an extent that it is overwhelming, I know that God loves me. I know the joy of being in the presence of God. And it's easy to have expectations set far too low in terms of what it might mean now to be an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. And I believe that God wants more for us than that. So maybe, well look, there are lots of things that might have struck us this morning as we've thought about this. There may be particular things that we want to take to the Lord and repent of, turn away from. I realize that I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, but have not been living as one. There are people available after the service to pray with you. Do come and pray with them. But it may be that actually you just feel like, I know in my head that God's loved me, but I don't believe it. I don't feel it. Why not ask a friend to pray with you that by God's Holy Spirit, the reality of what God says about you would come home to you. That if you're a Christian person, you are his beloved child. He delights over you with singing, there is joy in his heart because of you and there should be joy in your heart because he feels like that about you and because he is present with you by his spirit. The Baptist preacher in the 19th century, a Baptist preacher called Charles Spurgeon, talked about the story of the prodigal son. He preached a sermon on the story of the prodigal son and the image that Jesus has of the father falling on the younger son's neck and kissing him. 
as he welcomes him back into the family. And this is what Spurgeon said about it. God's people do not always know the greatness of his love to them. Sometimes, however, it is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. Some of us know at times what it is to be almost too happy to live. The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we've almost had to ask for a stay of the delight because we could not endure any more. If the glory had not been veiled a little, we should have died of excess, of rapture or happiness. Beloved, God has wondrous ways of opening his people's hearts to the manifestation of his grace. He can pour in, not now and then, a drop of his love, but great and mighty streams. Why don't we make that the object of our prayers this morning, that God would pour those great and mighty streams of his love and rapture upon us by his spirit. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you that just as Moses completed the work of the tabernacle, Jesus completed a much greater work on the anniversary of that day that he made a way open to your very throne itself. And we thank you that that risen and exalted Lord Jesus has poured out your spirit on your people. We thank you that it is that spirit that's enabled us to turn to Jesus, to receive the forgiveness that he offers. We thank you that it is that spirit that's at work in the life of our church. But Father, we pray, would you work among us in all the more obvious and powerful ways. Lord, we long to know the power of your love and your presence. Father, we yearn to be people like Moses who who would say, don't take me into the promised land if I will not be in your presence. Help us to delight in you in a new way. Work in us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.